Welcome to the Cashflow Guys Podcast. That's right, boys and girls. It's that time again. We are back another week, and this is your first time here. My name is Tyler Chef, and I'm your host, and you've arrived at the Cashflow Guys Podcast. And guys, I got a treat for you this week. I haven't done a three-way interview, I don't think, ever. And this is probably be one of my first. It probably is my first ever. This is going to be good, guys. We're going to talk taxes, but I promise you, I swear to you that we're not going to bore you to tears. Now, we might get a little bit in the weeds, and if we do, that's my my, my partner Mike's fault. He tends, he's one of those airline pilot guys. He tends to get deep in the weeds. He can't help it. He flies big airplanes for a living, at least until we fire him after we buy stuff in Key West. But that's a story for a whole other episode. I'm glad you guys are here. We're going to jump right in here in just a second, and we're going to talk a little differently. We're going to tell you the stuff that, well... Most syndicators, most people that are doing deals probably aren't going to tell you. It's the stuff that, I'll be honest with you, isn't sexy. There's actually some bad news when you invest in syndicates. Sometimes making money can be interpreted as a bad thing. It can actually cost you money to make money. We're going to cover that this week. It's not going to be pretty all the way through, but we're going to do our best. We're going to have fun, and let's go ahead and kick it off. Let me make sure I've got these guys here with me. I can see them, but I want to make sure I can hear them. John, are you with me? I am. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. How about yourself? Good. So John Hartung is a CPA out there in, in lovely Colorado. He's out there near Mike and he's actually, Mike has hired him. Mike Marino, you guys know Mike from a previous episode. Uh, Mike has hired him as his own CPA. And then when it came to doing the fund, we decided to bring, it made sense to bring John in as our tax expert, right? We need somebody on our team. We have done, I think Mike, we've done a great job of surrounding ourselves with the right people. That was a process, I, w- I would say. Wouldn't you agree? Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And if I've learned my lessons the hard way. If you don't, you get in either trouble real fast or stressed out where you start losing your hair, like Tyler. Exactly. That's why I don't have any hair, because I've already made a lot of these mistakes before. But now we're going to make less mistakes because we got people like John on our team. we got a tax expert. We actually have two tax folks on our team. I've got my CPA. He's Mike's got his. <coughs> John's going to be handling the tax, all things uh, taxation for the fund. We have our legal team. We've got all kinds of people involved. We've got buyer's agents and listing agents and all kinds of good stuff. Lots of stuff happening. This week, though, guys, we're going to talk about taxation. And we brought John on because he does a real good job of keeping taxation, at least for me, simple. Uh, you know, Mike likes to go in the weeds, and Mike's, Mike's the smart one of the family. I'm just here for the good looks and, you know, the jokes. Mike's here for the brains. He, he'll take us deep, but I'm going to run shallow like you guys are used to, having fun with it. And I'm gonna, we're going to throw some questions out here that are going to cover things that people that might be thinking about investing passively uh, in a fund may want to know. And it's not the stuff, the typical stuff you're going to hear in an investment webinar, not all of it anyway. Um, you're going to hear some stuff that might make you not want to invest in a, in a syndicate. And when it comes to taxation, these are things you have to think about, right? One of the things, it's great to think about making money. There's nothing wrong with that. But, you know, with, with every good deed comes a, a price. And sometimes when you make a lot of money, you got to pay a lot of tax. And what we're doing down here in Key West, we're doing big things. We got all kinds of stuff working. We're going to be doing some, buying some guest houses and short-term rentals and long-term rentals and that type of stuff. And there's, there's going to be capital gain situations. We're going to make money. And when we make money that we're going to create a tax situation. So before I even get John going here with the questions, I want to say to you, follow my lead. And when I say that, I mean, get out there and find a tax professional to help you through these issues. Like 
We had one come up recently, and John, you were great helping us out with that. And the question was, can I 1031 exchange into your fund? And the short answer, less complex answer is you can. The long answer is Tyler's not going to let you because it's a royal pain in the tail for me. And I don't, <laughs> I'll be honest with you. And it's very complex to do, but it is possible. And so, yes, the answer is yes, but uh, it's not something that we're probably going to be offering to our investors at this time. So, guys, when you're putting these things together, when you're doing investment opportunities and you're representing lots of different people, one of the things that Mike and I have to think about, first and foremost, is we have to do what's best for the com- the greater good, the common good of our investment team, right? The folks are trusting us that are investing in our fund to go out there and, number one, find great deals, find situations that make sense to reduce risk as much as possible. There's no such thing as an investment that doesn't have risk, uh, but we try to keep it real, right? Keep it to a minimum and the business of it, the financials of it is one part, but the taxation, what the result of that is, is another part. And with that, one of the things I see, John, that a lot of investors, both passive, active, beginning or experience make is that they try to do their own taxes a lot of cases. I know a guy that's been investing for years, and he's like, well, you know, the one thing about paying taxes, the more taxes you make, pay, the more taxes you make. And I was like, well, I suppose there's a little bit of logic to that. I don't necessarily agree, but don't you take, well, I take all these deductions, I do this, I do that. But he's he he's had like four federal tax liens already. So clearly, and that's because he boo-booed on his, on his tax return. And then he goes out and reads the next best-selling author book. He's too cheap to pay for a CPA. And every, I don't know, every four or five years, the IRS smacks him on the hand and he pays it dearly. And then he just says, well, I won't do that again. And that's his policy. But, John, what I'm learning with working with you is depending on how much you make and how you earn your income, there's advantages that you can take that the IRS puts out there for you uh, to help you reduce your tax liability or change how you're taxed. So in this fund, we're dealing with people primarily, the people are going to invest in this fund for those that don't know are called accredited investors. What does that mean? Accredited investors is someone that makes over $200,000 a year or has a million dollars in free and clear assets. And uh, that's a, that's an that's a SEC regulation. And the IRS basically dictates what an accredited investor is. So this question is going to pertain to someone who's making over two hundred grand. But for that person, uh, the person John that's making over two hundred grand a year, who is investing passively, being the key word, they're not out there actively investing. They're not writing contracts and they're not swinging a paintbrush and none of that. They're just investing passively in someone else's deal or in a fund as a limited partner. Are there tax deductions available to that taxpayer or not? What will generally happen at that income level when you're dealing with uh, real estate is um, any losses that would be incurred would flow through to the individual. However, at that income level, those losses wouldn't be deductible at this time. Okay. Uh, they would be called what's what they would be referred to as uh, suspended passive activity losses. Okay. And basically, they kind of be put up on a shelf and they're carried forward until such time that they can be used. Now. If the individual has other passive income from another entity or another business of some sort, that passive income can be offset by these passive losses that flow through. Okay. So there's there's that advantage there. But short of having other passive income, these passive losses would have to be suspended. Um, but the plus side is when the investment terminates, 
any passive losses that are suspended get deducted all at once in that same year. Okay. So there's a lot of tax planning opportunities uh, available for things like that. Oh, that's a good point. And that brings me to my next thing I wanted to run by you is people listening to this episode, they're going to say, oh, maybe I probably shouldn't do my taxes anymore. Maybe my tax professional doesn't ask me any questions and doesn't and just makes a whole bunch of assumptions. And hell, maybe they don't even talk to their tax professional. Are you available to take on new clients? Can people after listen to this episode reach out to you? and say, hey, man, I need your help. Can you consult me here? Does it make sense to, how can I develop that tax plan? Is that something you're willing to help folks with? Uh, they can retain your services for that? Uh, absolutely. Uh, I am I am available to anybody who needs some help. I am taking on new clients. Okay. And you know, uh, I like to get a picture of everything that they've got going on in their tax world, because a lot of things make a difference that some people might not even really think much about. I mean, just right. having a child is a taxable, is a, is a tax advantage event in times. And so I am certainly available to, uh, to help and assist and, um, and help with planning and preparation and, uh, you know, whatever you might need research so forth. That's cool. And they can also check, uh, obviously cross-check advice. And that's something that I've done over the years. It's an important lesson I've learned is to cross-check advice. And guys, an example of that is one of my students in our inner circle group was telling us they're out interviewing CPAs. John's on their list of folks to interview. They just haven't made it to John yet. And one of the interviewees, this the this is a certified tax professional, a CPA, not John, um, had said to them, hey, you can just go get your real estate license and that will qualify you as a real estate professional and therefore you'll qual you'll automatically qualify for passive income losses. In other words, go get a real estate license and somehow Uncle Sam says, now you suddenly are bequeathed with the ability to no longer pay tax. Not that simple, John? Is that true or false? That's true. It's not that simple. Right. Uh, a real estate license couldn't hurt but it's really not even necessary. Right. Uh, the requirements are not whether or not you're licensed. The requirements are how many hours do you participate in real estate activities? And you need to have at least 750. Okay. And how much of your activity regarding work is uh, associated with real estate activities? And it needs to be more than 50%. A real estate license, like I said, it, it can't hurt, but it's no good if you just sit back and watch TV all day right. uh, and you're not participating in any kind of real estate activities. That's what I thought. Yeah, that's good advice. And with that, I noticed the thing you said was active. So somebody that's investing passively in the fund, this isn't even something worth discussing because it's an what we're doing here, as far as our limited partners, is a passive investment. Is that accurate? Yes, that's accurate. Okay. Uh, this is this is going to be passive, regardless. Limited partners, uh, by definition, are are passive, and uh, it's very hard to get around that. Fair enough. All right, this is Mike Marino. Glad to be back on the Cashflow Guys podcast, John. Yeah, thanks for all your help. I mean, John's been helping me for oh, well over a year now, ever since I moved to Colorado with everything that. I'm growing as far as my real estate stuff goes. And so we're so happy to have them on the on the fun side. And more importantly, as Tyler laid out, giving the transparency as far as taxes to us and also the investors with this podcast is huge. John, to continue on the real estate professional status, a lot of my airline pilots have been super interested since we did that episode a few months back. Now, mm -hmm. I think you already alluded to it, but as a passive investor, a limited partner in the fund, can they contribute any hours that would add to that real estate professional status? You know, they, they could, but they'd have to be um, active participants in the fund itself, making decisions, being part of, uh, you know, any kind of decision-making process, really. Um, analyzing the financial statements, uh, just being very, uh, very involved. 
uh, in doing so. But they would have to be material participants in order to really make a difference. And that would require a lot of time and a lot of uh, expertise and activity to be involved like that. I see. So as a limited passive investment, which most people want, they want their hands off. They don't want to be dealing with tenants and toilets. Most likely that time will not be applied to the real estate professional status, it sounds like. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's, that's good to know. I know it's a hot question, especially with taxes. Mm-hmm. So uh, another question I have is, can a passive investor take advantage of straight line depreciation as a limited partner in this or any real estate fund? All of the deductions that happen within the real estate fund, they happen at what we refer to as the partnership level. The partnership is going to earn income. The partnership is going to have expenditures and, ex- and depreciation is one of those expenditures. These individual expenses of office expense, depreciation, advertising, those kind of expenses are not individually allocated to the, the separate partners of the partnership. Instead, these expenses are subtracted from the income and that net number is what is allocated to the partners based on their ownership percentage. There are certain circumstances called special allocations, but that's that's far beyond the scope of what we're talking about here, particularly since we're talking about passive investors. Specific depreciation, no, they, they wouldn't take that particular deduction, but it would be part of the net income or loss that is flowing through to them. Gotcha. Gotcha. So it would benefit the fund, not the individuals, but then once the fund is complete at the end of seven years, that's when we would realize that? Well, it would actually happen on a year-to-year basis. The the fund would earn income and take deductions on a year-to-year basis. And at the end of the year, the net income or loss, again, would get allocated between the partners. And then you know that loss, as I mentioned before, would probably end up being passive activity losses that are suspended. Then as the years go by, three, five, seven years, once the fund dissolves and the assets are sold, the liabilities are paid, and it's it's over with, that is when those passive activity losses get released and deducted. Uh, but like I said, the individual expenses are not allocated that way among the partners. I see. A lot of funds, they, they mention the keywords value add. Value add, as you know, Tyler and I talked about before, it's, it's another fancy word of saying flipping or at least improving the property and then taking advantage of that uh, forced appreciation on it. So John, with an asset like a Key West property that's in the fund, if let's say if we were able to flip a property in six months versus maybe 18 months, how would that affect the tax consequences for our investors? Well, flipping a property in uh, one year or less would generate a short-term gain or loss. And that, if it's a gain, it would be flowing through to the partners and it would be subject to the marginal tax rates. Whatever, whatever bracket they're in, that's the tax rate they would pay. There is no favorable capital gains tax treatment for short-term capital gains. So if they're in the 30% bracket, That's what they would pay, 30% on that particular gain. Losses that flow through, uh, even though they're short-term, they would still be limited to $3,000 per year, but the remainder would be carried forward. Now, if they have uh, a portion of loss uh, from the funds, a capital loss, and they have from other sources capital gains, those two will offset each other and net each other out. So Hmm. again, another planning opportunity Uh, If you know you're going to get losses or gains from the fund and you have other assets that you can work and sell or uh, flip or however, you can use these things to your advantage if you do them in the right timing. Wow. It's all about timing. Yep. 
Great. Thanks, John. Well, that takes all my fun out. That means I can't go around to Key West flipping houses and, and without getting some grief from my investors, or at least I got a stall, which kind of brings me to a, a little side point is, guys, timing is everything, right? When it comes to market timing, and a lot of folks are thinking right now, my God, there's a there's a eviction ban, then there's not, and then there is, and then there's not, and all this weird stuff going on. And don't think that we're not thinking about this whole thing at the same time, because we are. We're focused on really what's happening. And if you get kind of freaked out about the whole lack or lack thereof of an eviction ban or an eviction ban coming. Understand that one of the reasons why we picked Key West, which is a little bit off topic here, but I want to cover it because it's relevant. Uh, one of the reasons why we picked Key West is the market we're focusing our energy on. I did a research research and I, when I initially, and I compared it to Tampa or to you know Hillsborough County, you know, which is up in northern north from here. The number of foreclosure or the number rather of eviction cases in uh, Hillsborough County, the last time I looked, was around 22,000. And the number of eviction cases in Monroe County, which is where Key West is, Monroe County, Florida, was uh, 23. So as you can tell, it's a completely different space here. We're playing with a whole different market, a different mindset, a different mentality. Why am I mentioning this? Because Key West is not the kind of place where you come and arbitrarily roll the dice and see what happens, right? There's absolutely capital gains here to be had. There's, You can, I suppose, come out here and flip houses, but you got to understand that when you're acquiring a home in Key West, you're starting at a million bucks to get four walls and a roof, and that's a big flat maybe. Um, and then you get to fix it from there. And there's a lot of different factors that are uh, that are weighed into that that decision. But when it comes to leveraging risk, right, and when it comes to looking at how you're going to earn your money, and that's going to dictate to John's point, what he just said recently is in uh, this past question is how you earn your money is going to have an impact on how you're taxed. So for us, Mike and I, we're we're cash flow people. I mean, the name of this podcast is Cash Flow Guys, right? That's what we're about. It's about uh, earning income in streams versus piles, because then you can sit down with a tax professional and you can hash out a plan and go, Hey, look, uh, John, I'm, I'm going to invest with the, 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 uh, cash flow capital fund. I've got, I don't know, 200 grand sitting in my checking account. I'm going to go in with 200 grand in my fund and I fly with Mike. I trust Mike. I listen to Tyler's podcast. I'm also going to put 200 grand of my IRA money in. You can sit down with John. He's going to map it out for you on, okay, here's what you're looking based on the, the, this, these deals coming up that, that we may be doing in the proposed exits, you know, this will be a tax consequence and here's how we can work with that. And here's how we can work with that. And they can, you can build you a whole plan and see, that's the thing. When you have a whole plan, then it makes it worth it. You're not going to escape paying tax. And I know a lot of you are resistant to, I don't want to do anything that, that caused me to pay tax. And trust me, I'm with you guys. When I hear that, I'm like, I don't want to give these fools one red cent because they don't know what to do with it. But at the end of the day, you got to look at as compared to what? As compared to poverty? Well, poverty sucks, I can tell you. That's why I moved to Key West. John, when it comes to doing some of this short-term stuff, and really where I was going with this is, guys, there's opportunities, and, and I'm an opportunist. You guys have known me now that are on the listen to the show for five years. I've been going to come up on episode 300, for God's sake. So for 300 weeks, I've been talking to you guys, built a big audience. We're a popular show. One of the things you guys know is I'm risk-adverse, right? I don't like the idea of flipping houses. And that big part of that is the tax treatment. I'm not excited about it. At that stage of the game, how long it takes to get stuff done, and I don't want you to lose that point, makes a difference on how you're taxed. If you're acquiring, let's say, a piece of land and you're doing a development or you're buying a house and you're doing a major renovation, that renovation could take 
12 to 18 months. And a lot of you shudder at the thought of that. You rehabbers are going, no way, dude, you should be able to turn a house in 90 days. Well, that's all fine and dandy. But if you plan for these things up front, if you buy an asset and you decide, okay, normally I would flip this house, but maybe I'm going to vacation rental this house for a year. Maybe I'm going to renovate it in six months, over six months, and I'm going to do a great job renovating it. And I've already factored in the, the time that it takes to get the right contractors that'll actually show up and actually do the work correctly and not knock your face off in the price at the same time, right? Give you good value. We do a a structured flip, right? I'll call it a, or a phased flip where we acquire an asset, we get a great deal, right? We get great upside opportunity when we exit it. Now you can go to John and say, yes, this is a flip, but they're not going to flip it next week. They're not going to flip it in this tax year. Instead, what they're going to do is they're going to buy this house or this condo or whatever. They're going to make it pretty. They're going to make it really nice. They're going to furnish it, right? If we get into a big ticket item and it makes sense to do a cost segregation, then we'll hire a, a firm to handle that because that's something that, that's outside of the scope of what John does, but he's still going to be able to give you the guidance to to see how the benefits are going to apply to you. Then we rent this thing as maybe a short-term or vacation rental for a year, maybe two, and take the profits from the cash flow, right? So you're going to have that coming in. And then we liquidate the asset a couple of years down the road. And John, correct me if I'm wrong, I would imagine that that should allow for a bit more favorable tax treatment versus a 90-day you know, fluff and buff and flip and go, correct? Certainly, yes. You'll be looking at long-term capital gains. The maximum rate on that right now is 20%. Biden has got some tax plans that he's formulating, so we don't know what's going to happen with that right now. But uh, you know, depending on the individual, if they, they could have thousands in capital gains, and depending on their other types of income and their, per- and their, and their situation, they could end up paying no tax at all. Uh, there is a zero tax rate for capital gains, uh, and it depends on how much other income you have. So once again, tax planning strategy, right. but there's certainly tax benefits to holding something long-term over short-term. Uh, you, If you treat it as a rental, you'll probably have some uh, what's referred to as Section 1250 recapture, which means that amount of depreciation you took on the building would be taxed at 25%, but possibly lower depending, again, on the individual and what tax rate they're in. Right. So Very good. certainly benefits, certainly benefits. And we talk about UBIT tax, and I know that comes up, and that's a dirty word, especially for folks in, in IRAs. I know that, that UDF and UBIT pops up. Let's talk about UBIT for a second. What is UBIT tax? And for that matter, how does it apply to, to taxpayers who are investing with their IRA or their 401k? Well, a UBIT is unrelated business income tax is what it is. It's a tax on income within your IRA that is not for the benefit of the IRA. It's easiest just to give you a quick example. If your IRA were to invest in something like a specialty grocery store, for example, and that grocery store earned income, earned ordinary income, and that transferred to your IRA. Well, that ordinary income is in the interest of that entity that earned it. Right. And it's not in the interest of the IRA. So that income would be subject to the unrelated business income tax, the UBIT tax. And so there's uh, that, that happens if you were to invest in a flow-through entity for an LLC or an S-corporation that generated that kind of income. The fund that we're talking about here doesn't generate that kind of income. And the income that's generated by the fund is specifically excluded from UBIT. So that's not an issue with regard to the fund and IRAs. But it can be an issue if you're not careful about what you invest in within your IRA. That's good to know. And you see, guys, you can see here, right here, the benefit when you're doing a fund or you're doing a syndicate, you're out there putting deals together. Talk to your tax people first before you start writing contracts and writing offers because now armed with this information, we can go out and structure deals differently such that we can receive better tax treatment. Very important. And UDFI, John, 
I know that stands for the, I think it's unrelated debt, something or other. What's UDFI stand for? What, what, how does that differ from, from UBIT? Okay. Uh, UDFI is unrelated debt finance income is what that is. And this comes into play when the IRA borrows money in order to invest in an asset. Okay, that's that's how it originates. Formula for it is uh, it's relatively simple, but basically it's based on the ratio of debt that you have versus the basis of the asset times the amount of income. And then that result, that's the amount that's taxable. Okay. So whatever percentage of debt that you use to buy an asset, that's that percentage of um, of income from that asset is going to be taxable. So if I have an IRA, a 401k, a self-directed IRA, whatever it may be, and I go out and buy, I don't know, a $100,000 house, and I go to the bank and say, hey, I want to take one of those IRA non-recourse loans where I'm going to put 60% down, I need to borrow 40%. Is that going to sting me then for UDFI? Yes. Okay. Yes. Uh, and whatever income that's generated from that rental property or whatever it is you bought, right. uh, 40% of that income would be taxable. So if I'm having a, a if I don't have enough in my account, and this is one thing everybody struggles with with a 401k, how much is enough money? People say, Tyler, I'd love to invest with uh, my 401k in real estate, but I only got 50 grand in my 401k. And one of the answers I've heard in the past is like, well, just go borrow money from one of these. And they don't tell people that, yeah, you can go borrow from a bank. There are a million banks out there that will loan money to an IRA in non-recourse. Uh, so you can go buy a rental property, but they don't take into consideration the fact that you're going to get whacked not only you're going to get whacked on UDFI, but you're also going to get hit on the income from that property with UDFI. And it, and it, and it kind of takes what would normally be an okay deal as a buy and hold deal and, and doesn't make it so great because when you apply taxation to whatever profit you're going to make doing a deal on your own, leveraging into it, you know, use, making your 401k or your self-directed IRA leverage have to go on, take on leverage to do the deal. That tax consequence turns a, what could be a great deal into a terrible deal. Sometimes... I've seen people actually wind up going into the red. They lose money because they didn't factor in things like UDFI. That wasn't a consideration. They're like, oh, well, I can borrow money. What could possibly go wrong? Um, If if I can add something to that. Yeah, absolutely. Just because you might have UDFI or uh, UBTI or UBIT, it shouldn't be a deciding factor in whether or not you invest in something in your IRA. You know, you kind of have to weigh weigh your options and go, well, I've got enough cash to maintain this. And I might have a tax liability, but the return on investment is going to be extraordinary. Right. So you, you, you want to look at the big picture because, I mean, you know, as you said in the beginning, you, if you have the tax, it's because you have the income. So uh, it's not necessarily a deal killer, but you do want to do kind of an analysis on it to see, is it worth it to you to give up the tax in return for a, a good investment? Okay. So something to consider. Yeah, absolutely. That's good advice. So, so, John, lately I've been a big proponent of the solo 401k. I've read a bunch of books about it. It really excites me because there seems to be a bit more as far as tax advantages, as far as contributing into it. Most people are already used to their corporate 401k, and the solo 401k is very, very similar from what I understand. So, John, you know, we were talking about the UBITAX, the UDFI. Could you talk about if, like a, if a landlord who already has rental property uh, would they have the ability to set up a solo 401k? And if so, would they have added benefits for investing in the fund? Well, they can set up a solo 401k. And uh, you, in, order to, to fund a, in order to fund any retirement plan, you have to have earned income. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you're going to ha- need to have that. So if you're, if you're a pilot, you would have earned income from your wages. 
no problem there. But uh, you know, you the benefits of of a solo four hundred one k are uh, you know you can contribute a lot more to a solo four hundred one k than you can to an IRA fifty seven thousand dollars versus six thousand um, dollars, and so you know there's there's that benefit. I suppose one of the drawbacks is they're a little bit more costly to maintain than than an IRA accounts, you know, with with management fees and things like that. But um, most likely, you're going to find that the advantages outweigh the um, disadvantages of it. Great. Can you talk a little bit more about the advantages of somebody with a solo 401k versus an IRA in the fund? The tax advantages. Well, like I said, it's it's the amount you can contribute and and deduct. So if you if you have a business if you have a business that has a solo 401k you're going to be able to contribute $57,000 into your solo 401k at the maximum but if you uh, if you're only looking at contributing to your personal IRA account you're going to be limited to 6,000 and both of these are deductible you know so either on the personal return or on the business return depending on how it's structured and what the employer contribution would be to the solo 401k and so forth uh, but that's the biggest advantage is, is the amount of money you can contribute and deduct. When you say have a business, let's say you're a W-2 employee, you're a pilot like Mike, and Mike decides to open a lemonade stand mm-hmm. as a side gig. Does that lemonade stand qualify him for the solo 401k then? Uh, yes, because it would be earned income. Interesting. So generally speaking, when it, when it comes to structuring deals, John, uh, we want to avoid, well, we don't necessarily want to avoid, I shouldn't say that, but we want to be cognizant of when we take on debt and deal, like a lot of apartment syndicators, they'll raise you know the the certain amount of equity on the deal they'll raise the down payments then they'll go get bank financing to to finance the rest or maybe they'll do some sort of seller financing on a deal or something like that in that case where they take on debt is udfi then am i to understand that udfi would kick in for them or not because they're passive uh no udfi would kick in because it is um it's it's borrowing money it's the ira borrowing money in order to fund an investment, whatever your return on that investment is, you're you know you're going to have to do the math to figure out how much of that investment return is going to be uh, taxable for UDFI. All right, I guess to clarify, if somebody comes in using their four hundred one k to invest passively into a deal that Mike and I are doing, mm-hmm. they're not going to. They already have the cash in their four hundred one k. It's just right. uh, they're going to deploy it into our deal as a, an investor mm-hmm. in our fund. So is it still treated as if they're taking on the debt, even though they're just bringing cash? Is that how it's looked upon? No, no, because the IRA is not doing the borrowing. Okay. The fund did the borrowing, but the IRA is not. Okay. So if Mike and I sign on the dotted line for a a mortgage for, I don't know, 60% of a deal and 40% of its debt, that's not going to trigger UDFI on, on those folks that are investing on passively. No, no, okay. because that's happening at the partnership level. Okay, perfect, perfect. That's good to know because that's that's one of those things that people have, I you know, on the Facebook legal team and tax professionals on Facebook that read a book and now they're suddenly have the same qualifications that you do, John. Amazing how that works. So <laughs> that's good. That's good to know. So, John, when somebody in, invests in the fund, uh, they're going to be getting quarterly distributions. So they're going to be getting a check in their account or a check in the mail. That's different than their usual W-2 check that they've been used to. It's, it's a bit different than a paycheck. So for those guys, when they receive that check, how is that going to be taxed? And how is it going to be taxed differently than a normal paycheck from a W-2? Well, um, distributions from uh, the uh, the fund, the, the partnership, they they would not be taxed. Okay. What the What the partner is taxed on is their portion of the net income for the year. So they can receive distributions, okay, 
but the net income is what rules as far as what's taxable. Now, that being said, you want to be careful that they don't get distributions that are in excess of whatever basis they have in the fund. If that were to happen, then they would end up with long-term capital gain on that excess. I don't see that happening. The way that kind of happens sometimes is um, if, uh, you know, uh, Tyler had mentioned earlier about doing um, a cost allocation. And if you did that and you accelerated the depreciation and created these bigger losses that they would, you know, that they would flow through to the um, partners, then when they get the, a distribution of their portion of the income, well, those losses are going to lower their basis. So the distributions might also take them in excess of basis. So it can happen in certain circumstances. Um, so you have to kind of be aware of, of the fact that that can happen and plan accordingly to make sure it doesn't. But um, the distributions themselves are not taxed. It is the net income from the partnership that is the deciding factor in what is taxed and what what's called income. See, that's why I like having you in the fund, John, is because knowing that you, you, having you here as a resource, I can sit down with these deals before I even bring them to Mike and I can get with you and go, okay, we've done the underwriting. Here's the, here's the initial plan before I even bother Mike with the next steps of how's this going to impact people. And you can give me a go, no go, or explain the, the consequences if there are some so that when I go to talk to Mike and, and, take it to the next step. I've got all the information, right? We don't have to do a lot of back and forth. So that's good stuff. That's good to know. Hey, John, let's talk about the big, big check. So when the fund ends between five to 10 years, obviously it depends on where the market cycle is. Our investors are going to be finally be able to cash out on all the appreciation that's been compounding all these years. So with big checks means Uncle Sam is looking even closer for their piece. So how would you recommend an investor who wants to plan for this big check at the end to properly have tax preparation for when it, when the check arrives? Well, it's, it's going to be different for everybody. And so it's, it's, I can't give you one blanket answer, but what I can tell you is you're going to want to work with somebody who knows your situation or can at least familiarize themselves with your situation and then plan accordingly. You know, you've got the fund that is going to sell off all the assets, pay off all the debts, and whatever's remaining is going to get distributed to the partners. You'd have to look at your own personal situation and look at what the fund is going to be providing. Is it going to be providing a whole bunch of rental income or losses, capital gains or losses, and so forth? So you have to know what's going to happen and then look at your own situation and say, okay, well, the fund is going to give me a whole bunch of capital gains. I've got some properties that are not doing so well. They're in a bad market. They're not going to come back for a long time. I can unload those, take those losses against these gains, and so forth. So you you can do all of these things. The other thing that needs to be considered is if these fund, if this fund has been generating rental losses for you throughout the years and those losses have been suspended, you're going to want to look at your income and say, okay, well, I've got all these suspended losses that are going to be released in this particular year because the fund is closing up. How much income can I take to offset the, to, to get eaten up by those losses and not be taxed on it? It's such a great opportunity to bring a whole bunch of different things together and get such a great tax benefit. Like, and I can just give you a, a loose example here real quick. If you've got all these passive losses and then all of a sudden, you know, the fund's going to close, you can take extra distributions from your retirement account if you wanted to bring that income in, let the passive losses absorb that. 
And then all of these capital gains, if you have no other income and you have all these capital gains flowing through from the fund, as the, the way the tax system is right now, they could be potentially taxed at zero. Oh, I like you know, that. so yeah. So a lot of great opportunities to plan in that thing, but you really need to work with somebody who knows what they're doing and can familiarize your, themselves with your situation and um, uh, if they're not already. And somebody who does know real estate because real estate's got a lot of gray areas and a lot of places to take advantage of the tax code. That, that's a good point. There's, I mean, there's a lot of CPAs out there, but not everybody specializes in real estate, which is why we True. get you on the team because you know that's <laughs> your forte. Amen. But, so one de- this debate I've been having with Mike, actually it's not really a debate, but it's a, it's a plan I, I'm going to implement uh, here soon. Next time Mike comes to town, every time Mike comes to town, he buys me lobster and drinks. Um, that's, that's a tax advantage for him, right? You can, you're a CPA. I'm asking you directly to hell with what he says. It, there is, there's a tax advantage there. It's always business because we're talking business. I mean, we're talking uh-huh. some shit, but we're talking business too. And yeah. I can get the big lobster. I can go with the extra uh, entree or, you know, the mm-hmm. extra, the sides and I can run up his liquor tab and whack the hell out of his credit card. That's all legit, right? You can show him the tax advantages of that after the fact, right? Uh, yeah, but what I'd like to know is when is he coming to Aurora so I can do that too? Well, I bet you, you being the CPA that you are, I bet you, you could figure out a way legitimately, of course, because I haven't personally met you and there's I'm a Key West boy. I'm not flying to Colorado unless the world's coming to an end. So I bet you we could get Mike to fly you on his dime because it's a business expense, right? To Key West. So we could, you could have a, a lobster and steak with us. We'll get a table for three. It'll be great. Actually, we'll bring right. we'll bring our attorney down too. We'll bring Sean Lesnar down. We'll have a great time. Mike can foot the bill because that's the kind of guy he is. And I, I know, I know. See what we're doing for you, Mike. We're saving you a freaking fortune in taxes here. Yeah, we are. We are. Uh, when it comes to meals, you want to be careful because those are scrutinized pretty closely by the IRS if they get to be excessive. So business meals. You know, if you're going to sit down, talk business, look over contracts, things like that. What you want to do is on the back of your receipt. Write down the date. Who did you have the meal with? What did you discuss? Keep a tab of those things so that you know. And if uh, and then you know you want to. I'm going to throw this out there because it's going to it's going to sound silly when I say it, but scan or photocopy your receipts. Because I know somebody who's going through an audit, and most of the receipts that she needs have faded, so she doesn't have them anymore. That's good. So scan or copy them. At any rate, though, when it comes to meals, make sure you document what the meal was. Uh, how was it business related? It has to be business related or be disallowed. So that's why every time I make Mike buy me a steak, he always videotapes it during the meal. <laughs> and then I, I, of course, videotape his shock as he signs the bill, like when he gets the tab, because I'm not cheap. I'm, I'm a spoiled little brat. And he has this uh-huh. look of, of shock in his face when as he signs that. It's always triple digit. That's my goal, right? It's Key West. You can't get a yeah. lobster tail down here for 100 bucks. It's just not happening. Yeah. So, Do you uh, have tissues for him to wipe the tears? Absolutely. Big crocodile yeah. tears. He's a big fancy pilot. He's all right. He's doing this. He can afford to take care of me. I'm just I'm just <laughs> an old fat guy down here in Key West minding my own business. I don't have a job. I'm just a bum. You know, whatever. Oh, uh, yeah. Sleeping yeah. under the bridge, all that good stuff. Last question before we wrap up here, John. Uh, for the a lot of folks I'm talking to right now, they're like, dude, I'm scared to death. I'm in the stock market. I'm a hero right now, but I'm about to be a zero. I'd love to get involved with what you guys are doing down in Key West. I want to get on board with Cashflow Capital. I want to see what's going on. But uh, is there a way for me to exit the stock market like in real estate? Because they've heard me. You can do the 1031 exchange from one to the other in real estate. But how do they get out of the stock market and escape? Because here's the thing. The stock market taxes the living shit out of them. Pardon my French. Every time they turn around. 
The only advantage to the stock market tax-wise is if you, you lose money, which is going to probably happen here soon anyway. But how does the, the is there a way that, that somebody can exit the stock market with a gain and not get their head knocked off in tax? Not really. That sucks. Uh, yeah, I mean, you, if you if you unload your stocks, you're going to have a gain or loss, and there's there's not really a way around it. You can't 1031 exchange stocks. That's specifically against the rules. Right. Um, so there's there's really not much you can do about that, uh, except again planning. If you have an asset that could produce a, a capital loss because you know it's not going to come back from wherever it is, then sell it. Take that loss and offset your capital gains and uh, so you can take that advantage. Also, look at how long you've held the assets. If you've only got a couple more weeks or maybe another month and a half to go, hang on to it and uh, plan accordingly. Again, there's three different tax rates for capital gains, 0, 15, and 20. And that, and they are, they're based upon what your income is without regard to the capital gain. So you look at that kind of advantage too. And if you're, if you're close enough, just hang on a couple more weeks and then sell it off and take your gain or loss, you know? So at the end of the day, they can just invest with, with us here in the fund and make back all that taxes they had to pay anyway and profits. Cause that's what we plan to do anyway. That's what I plan to do. I don't know. What do you think, Mike? You ready to make some profits down here? Sure. I'm, I'd like to highlight something that, that John mentioned. He used the word tax loss and then advantage in the same sentence. I like that. And that was, uh, for many people, that makes no sense. Loss is bad. Advantage is good. How could you combine the two? So obviously, this this is why you need a CPA in your team, whether with us or individually. So, so John, can you kind of just briefly touch on how a tax loss can equal an advantage? Sure. Well, uh, one of the key reasons that people get into renting real, you know, renting properties and real estate transactions like that are because you can have a loss on your tax return, but you could generate positive cash flow. All right. And so that and that's the advantage. You end up with a positive cash flow. You brought more cash in than you put out. But on your taxes, you have a loss that could possibly be deductible on your taxes for that year, if not suspended and and deducted when uh, when the activity is completed. Uh, so that that's kind of how it works. I don't have a specific model to show you at the moment, but uh, a lot of it comes down to the fact that you can depreciate these properties. Now, depreciation is not something you write a check for. Okay, so if your depreciation can be higher than what your mortgage payments would be, for example, which is what you write a check for, you've generated positive cash flow because you're paying out less than the deduction you're getting for depreciation. So that depreciation can throw you into loss, but when you're comparing depreciation to the mortgage payment, for example, you've generated positive cash flow. Wow. I hope so, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. So it, it could show as a loss uh, on the paper when I hand it over to you to do my taxes, mm-hmm. but that loss is going to equal to more money in my pocket. It certainly can, yes. Wow. So on that same topic, you know, we were talking about some a big stock investor, right? Mm-hmm. It, let's say in year seven, we come out of the fund with a big, big check for everybody. But they also lost a ton of money in the stock market because who knows what happens at that cycle. Can they offset their income from the fund, the capital gains income from the fund, with the capital gains lost from the stocks then? Absolutely. Uh, capital gain is capital gain. It doesn't matter where it comes from. Uh, and capital loss is capital loss. And short-term gains and short-term losses are netted together first. Long-term gains and long-term losses are netted together. 
And then those two balances are netted against each other, short-term and long-term. So you can have $100,000 of short-term gain and offset it against $100,000 of long-term losses. So, uh, but again, it could be capital gain and loss from the stock market. It could be capital gain and loss from real estate. It could be capital gain and loss from almost anything that's a capital asset. Um, and they will offset each other. Yes. Wow, that's powerful. It is powerful. And that's, guys, that's why <laughs> I could summarize this by saying, guys, that's why we, <laughs> that's why the government come up with the stuff, guys. I mean, you know, I'm sitting here going, I don't know how that, I'm with that. Mike's, Mike gets it. I understand it. True. Yes. But at the end of the day, yes, you can actually take a loss even when you've had a gain. It's a mincing of words, whatever. But the bottom line is, guys, there's a rule book, right? And thank you, John, for coming on the show this week. I appreciate it. But there's a rule book, guys. There's a rule book out there. It's called the Federal Tax Code. And there are people out there, they're called CPAs, and their job is to read the damn tax code because you and I shouldn't be messing around with the tax code. It's not our thing. We should be reading contracts. We should be looking at pro formas. We should be laughing at those real estate brokers that are telling us we can double the rent in an hour just by putting in for Mike countertops because we know that's not true. But guys, the bottom line is you surround yourself with people, right? Because none of this stuff is really rocket science if you've got yourself surrounded by a good team. And I know that sounds cliche. I know many of you are sick and tired of hearing it, but I can't begin to tell you how much help people like John and Sean Yesner and other professionals have been in helping Mike and I build out this fund. And that said, if you guys are interested, if you ever thought about getting involved in real estate investing, you want to supercharge your retirement plan, you're sick and tired of flying a plane, doing surgery or all the other crap that you have to do, answering to somebody else, and you want to actually get financially free, then head over to uh, keywestcashflow.com forward slash call. That's keywestcashflow.com forward slash call. This concludes today's episode. You don't have to wait till the next episode to learn to earn. Head over to CashFlowGuys.com and contact Tyler and his team for more powerful tips and ideas. So you can start generating multiple streams of income and escape the rat race.